So let's um, turn our minds to our own good hearts. That, you know, as the, the world seems to be de- degenerating in some way that seems to be out of our control, the longing to find peace and to make sense of our own lives in this world grows deeper and at times it seems to be almost more urgent. And so today as we gather to share friendship, to share some of the Buddha's teachings, to really rejoice that we have the curiosity, we have the interest, we have the karma to be able to meet the Buddha's teachings, and that to um, see the goodness in each other, although we are very different from very different walks of life, professions and interests and whatever, is that we have this common shared basic value of wanting to become the best that we can, to be able to cultivate all of our good qualities and work on, if not subduing, at least lessening those not quite helpful qualities. And by extension, to be able then um, take that good heart out into the world and be of benefit to everyone that we meet. And so today may our hearts be open and may they be clear and welcoming to all the thoughts and insights and sharings that each of us puts out there, knowing that it is really for the mutual benefit of each other as well as the world at large. So when I uh, volunteered to do this topic, I, I, I feel very connected to interfaith dialogue. I've had some experience with it, but after going through these books and thinking about them and typing up my notes, I'm just so absolutely inspired by being on this path and by the possibilities of the human mind, of the possibility of our own hearts to really connect if we can sort of come to the basic premise is that in our search to find the path to happiness, many of us go towards a spiritual path as one of the fundamental tools in which we search. And unfortunately, however, many times the tool, the spiritual tradition of the faith, because we have these minds under control of afflictions and karma, we take that tool and we start building these identities around them. We box ourselves in by what we think being a Buddhist, being a Christian, being a Hindu, being a Kagyu, being a Zen practitioner is. And then what ends up happening is that we judge others based then on what we identify them as. And so we're, here we've got this beautiful tool that we want to find meaning and happiness in our life. And instead of connecting us, it ends up causing a lot more divisiveness. Because we have these minds that, and this self-grasping ignorance that just wants to reify, concretize, make us substantial in some way. And our religious faith, what we label ourselves, is a huge part of how we box ourselves in. So Venerable starts the chapter right off on the bat. We have this beautiful motivation, this sincere intention, and we get in trouble by default because of these minds that we have that want to make, build things and construct things and make ourselves something that we're not. And um, 
we create a general conception about a, what a name means, and then we assume that everybody who's a Buddhist thinks exactly like every other Buddhist that exists, and a Christian thinks every, exactly the way that every other Christian does, and an atheist or someone who's sec- secularist think all the way the same as everybody else. And that um, the argument then begins, you're this, and I'm this, and never the twain shall meet. And the division gets more and more concretized and more and more solid, and it becomes a source of great suffering. Now, as far as Venerable, in her book she says, as far as she knows, there has never been a war fought in the name of the Buddha. Buddhism has taken some pretty heavy hits from other, from the Muslims and from King Long Dharma in Tibet, who tried to wipe out the Buddha Dharma. But it doesn't mean that we are innocent of any type of sectarianism or divisiveness. And the Tibetan tradition within itself has some difficulties and uh, conflicts even within its own tradition. And the sectarianism, Venerable says, it it presents quite a, a danger and it becomes a great obstacle because the Buddhist teachings, the two main qualities that he has encouraged us to foster are wisdom and compassion. And so what happens is that we get attached to this label and this identity of being a Buddhist or being religious, and then we start taking personal affronts to anybody who seems to disagree about what we think or what we believe in. And so in result of that, then there becomes this confusion, this animosity, we get angry, we start holding our position and having very strong feelings about how we feel about our religion. And and so instead of cultivating the wisdom that the Buddha has encouraged by our teachings, we're starting to, well, the ignorance is growing deeper and the anger is growing deeper. And so instead of cultivating the good qualities, we now have anger in our minds, which then out of of a result of the anger or the divisive speech or the strong opinions and attachment to our ideas, we end up then creating the karma by doing actions of either speaking unkindly or spreading just being um, sort of taking a position which is not helpful to engage with other people in the world. So we're kind of counter contradicting the teachings that we have been called to practice. And then as far as compassion, which is the wish for all sentient beings to be, a, be free of suffering and its causes, by the position and the labeling and the judging of our, you know, other people in relationship to what we believe our religion means, is then we're totally shooting ourselves in the foot as far as cultivating compassion. So we're doing exactly the opposite of what we so dearly want to cultivate within our own minds. And so um, Venable starts out with being, starting with how there are differences and struggles within the Buddhist tradition. And I think a lot of people don't realize that, um, well, in in the West it's a little bit more obvious because we have a lot of different versions of Buddhism in the West. We've got... Tibetan Buddhism, we've got Chinese Chan Buddhism, we've got Zen Buddhism, we've got Pure Land, we've got the Pali tradition, we've got Theravada Buddhism. And so um, what happens is, is that the Buddha taught so many people with so many different types of predispositions. We've been told that he taught 84,000 teachings. Whether that's accurate or not, it means a whole lot, whatever the number is. <laughs> and that he taught to the person who was in front of him on whatever level of spiritual development they were. And so although the different spiritual traditions maybe have focuses and language and philosophical differences, it doesn't mean 
that we should be encouraged to criticize or abandon or neglect any of the Buddhist traditions. And so when I was looking over my notes this morning, I was pondering, I've been over at the cabin with Maitri, staying with the little kitty while Venerable's been gone, and I was looking up in her library. She's got books from the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, she's got uh, texts and scriptures from the Chinese Chan tradition, she's got texts from the Pali tradition, she's got some non-sectarian academic you know, discourses on Buddhism that were done by academics who aren't necessarily Buddhists. So here is my teacher, who is an extremely wise and seasoned practitioner, who keeps her mind and heart open to these other traditions, thinking that somewhere along the line, she's going to open one of those books, and she may be able to have some sort of understanding from of her own tradition by looking at the teachings through some, some other tradition's um, perspective on the Buddha. And so she says that criticizing any of the teachings or neglecting to at least staying open to them um, sort of puts us in a place where we're going to give up or not notice the very methods that are going to help us. And so um, she says it's very, very helpful to be open even within this tradition on all the different ways in which the Buddha taught, knowing that somewhere along the way our path may actually need something from the Pali tradition, something from the Chinese tradition, something from the Zen tradition, and to keep our hearts and minds open. Similarly, she says, that doesn't mean then that we have to study everything all at once. You know, His Holiness, we saw a video yesterday, and he said that he's been studying the 300 texts in the t Tibetan canon. Well, His Holiness has the kind of mind that can do that. We don't have to then take on everything and expect to know it. The path is an ex extremely gradual process. We learn it little by little. We, we don't put any pressure on ourselves that we have to understand the Pali tradition very well and the Chinese tradition very well and our own tradition in and out, upside down, and all at once, and that it is a very, very gradual process. And that slowly over time we grow into the teachings and can integrate them more and more into our lives. So she wanted to be very clear that there's, a, there's an understanding that needs to be made about putting aside some of the Buddhist teachings because we don't think that they're um, the high ones, that they're the correct view, that they will lead to realizations. There's one thing about criticizing and making judgments about the Buddhist teachings. And then there's one to understand the limit of our scope of understanding and putting some of the Buddhist teachings aside for perhaps some further investigations in the future. So there's one that says, I'm the one of limited capacity who cannot take on the teachings now, rather than saying there's something wrong with the Buddhist teachings. I'm fine. There's something wrong with this over here. So it's changing who's taking responsibility for being able to understand the, the, the teachings. So she wanted to, make, to have us understand that there's, a very, that there's a very strong distinction between criticizing and really understanding what our capacity is at any given time. So then, uh, and she used this great analogy. Venable uses analogies a lot, and I find them so helpful. And that she says that we all want to be the best. We want to be the best. We want to have the best. But she says, what does that actually mean? For a child who's reading, children's books are best. For an adult who's reading, adult books are best. For someone who is an English speaker, reading books in English is best preferable to another language, and someone who's Chinese would prefer the best books are ones that are written in Mandarin or Cantonese. People who eat foods, some eat these kind of foods, some eat those kind of foods, they both feed and nourish. So 
Best can be one of those things that is very specific to individuals. As long as the tradition, she says, cultivates not harming and benefiting and taking care of others. That is really the fundamental part that is shared by all the world religions and all the Buddhist traditions. And if that is inside and embedded in that spiritual tradition, that is sufficient. That is well, that is good, that is beneficial. And it makes then the practice of any spiritual tradition universally acceptable and universally legitimate. So then she goes into talking about Buddhism and other religions. And she says that the great leaders of all the great world religions, the great sages, have sought to benefit others by sharing their spiritual experiences. So whether it's the story of Moses, or it's the story of Lucy and Our Lady of Fatima, or it's the story of Muhammad having a vision of Allah, or Joseph Smith and God, and whoever, they have these very profound spiritual experiences, and they share them with us. Unfortunately, what we do, us common folks, become attached to the names of these experiences and philosophies, and then we decide to fight with those who disagree and say, well, your vision over there of Moses and the burning bush is not correct because uh, Mohammed over here had a vision of Allah on the mountain over here. And so the great spiritual sages, that wasn't their intention. I mean, they went seeking to find meaning, to develop their good qualities, to cultivate love and have purpose in their lives. They weren't interested in proving that they're right, that their way is better than others. Um, most of them lived very simply and worked very hard to make peace within their lives. Most of them, um, they never sought power or glory or wealth. And so this hostile sectarianism and racial prejudice is coming from our side and has nothing to do with the great spiritual sages of our time. In fact, they're hoping that we take their teachings so that we can find the same peace, the same love, the same wisdom that they found following that path. But once again, our minds under the control of afflictions and karma, you know, the, the sectarianism, the judgments, the identity, the, the building, the concretizing of these beautiful organic spiritual processes gets us into trouble. Um, and so I wanted to share, this is a quote from His Holiness, sort of embodies that, that point that Venerable made in the book. In his book, Kindness, Clarity, and Insight, the motivation of all religious practice is similar, love, sincerity, and honesty. The way of life of practically all religious persons is contentment. The teachings of tolerance, love, and compassion are the same. The basic goal is the benefit of humankind, every type of system seeking its own unique way to improve the conditions of human beings. If we put too much emphasis on our philosophy, our religion, or theory, and are too attached to it and try to oppose it on other people, it makes trouble. Basically, all the great teachers such as Buddha, Jesus Christ, Muhammad, founded their new teachings with the motivation of helping their fellow human beings. They did not need to gain anything for themselves or to create more trouble and unrest in the world. So we have to always keep that in mind about what was the intention of the great spiritual sages. So the, and so what His Holiness and what His Venerable do is that they say, well, let's start looking at the things that we have in common, the things that we do share among all the, the world religions. And after reading the, this chapter in this book, I'm astounded at the similarities and the, the values that are shared. They're not as obvious 
when we just think about the world religions. But His Holiness and Venerable are very precise on some of the, a lot of the things that we share. So the first of the crucial points is that all the world religions agree that material development alone is not the path to happiness. They recognize the limits of a purely materialistic and self-centered way of life just doesn't work on the long haul. And His Holiness says, in other words, at the heart of all the world's religions, there is a vision of human life that transcends the boundaries of the individual's physical existence as an embodied, finite, and temporal being. So just realizing that all the acquiring, all the advances, all the wealth in the world does not lead to the happiness that we seek. The second uh, shared value is that all religions strive to help humans improve themselves by developing their good qualities like love, kindness, and respect for others. And also encouraging them from there to implement them in serving others. That's number two. The other one is that His Holiness says that it is with compassion that the world's great religions come together, which is fostering this open heart that has this caring, genuine concern for others. And this is something that is consistent within the world religions. And this was something that I found really quite remarkable. I think this is where I was going to share it. I was a little bit later on. It's a piece about... um, compassion and about the loving and caring concern for others. He says that the great religions of the world, through this shared value of compassion, have the capacity to lift our hearts and raise our minds to a great experience of joy and understanding. Because we have this shared teaching on compassion, no matter what tradition in the world. And that he holds this fundamental belief that compassion, the natural capacity to care for others, is a basic aspect of the human spirit. It's not compromised, it's not conjectured that it is one of the basic aspects shared by all living human beings, and he says that it is the major source of our happiness. He has an absolute conviction that it is innate goodness, is underneath all the fighting, all the confusion, all the hostility, all the chauvinism, sexism, all the brutality, is this heart of compassion. And then, and so in that respect, there's absolutely no difference between a believer and a non-believer. You know, those who really practice secular ethics that have no particular spiritual tradition, if their base is compassion, there is absolutely no difference between them and a Buddhist, between them and an evangelical Christian or a Mormon. The other quality that, this is where I found it quite fascinating, is that the other quality that draws the traditions together is what we have called ethical restraint, also known as the golden rule. This basically states that a person's behavior towards others must be guided by the way that person wishes to be treated in exchange. And that in particular, one would refrain from those very actions one wishes not to experience themselves. And, you know, um, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Love your neighbor as yourself. There are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine major religions of the world that have the golden rule spoken almost exactly word for word. Zoroastri- Zoroastrianism. That nature alone is good, 
which refrains from doing to another whatsoever is not good for itself. Hmm. Judaism, what is hateful to you, do not do to your fellow man. This is the entire law. All the rest is commentary. (laughs) (laughs) Taoism, regard your neighbor's gain as your gain and your neighbor's loss as your own loss. Islam, no one of you is a believer until he desires for his brother that which he desires for himself. And there's like nine more of them. Exactly. can point to the, which, where it is in the Sabbath, where it is in the Udan Varga, where it is in the Sutra Kritinga. They have all these places where the golden rule plays itself out. It's what do we, how we want to treat others is the way in which we want to be treated. Um, so, and then the beauty that arises from compassion-centered centered ethics, which is where the golden rule and compassion unite is that it cultivates a spiritual path that walks away from self-centeredness, which at the same time deepens the ground of compassion in our lives. This can be found in most of the teachings about exchanging, we have it in Buddhism, it's called equalizing, exchanging self for others. And Jesus says it, His Holiness says, in one of the most beautiful ways he's ever heard it. So this is from Jesus. You have heard that it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have said that it was you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So his holiness uses this sort of as the the crux of equalizing and exchanging self and others, and that he admits that there is no teaching in any of the world religions that's more difficult than this one. The one that Jesus and the Buddha advocate to turn the other cheek, to give one's cloak, to walk an extra mile, to see your enemy as your spiritual teacher, to pray for those that mistreat and persecute you. In fact, he states, and this is, this is such an unbelievable thing, is that, his holiness says, that the entire spiritual path all of its purification practices, its atonements, its absences, its fasting, its exercises, its chantings, in every religious tradition, has been created in order to put to the test, when one is put to the test of harming against oneself, the practitioner responds with compassion. This is the most difficult teaching, and this is sort of the culmination of every deep longing every deep wanting to connect, this is where the rubber hits the road. And that the practice of loving kindness towards one's enemy is the ultimate test of one's spiritual progress. How far along are you away on the path? When someone harms you, someone criticizes you, how do you respond? That is where where the test is. And that as Shantideva, who is one of the great Indian sages in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition that we, we love in his compendium of training, says, if you do not practice compassion towards your enemy, towards whom can you practice? (laughs) And that the essence of this profound practice is, and this is sort of the summation of His Holiness's deep thinking about this, is if you can feel compassion for your enemy, 
then there is no limit to how far and how widely you can extend your compassion to others. And what the, the teachings of the great world religions seek to do is to help us to recognize that capacity to turn the other cheek, to equalize and exchange self for others, to recognize it, to enhance it, and to deepen it within ourselves. That's what he says is what they seek to do, sort of the, the deepest place of the world's religion is to be able to have that level of compassion. So then we move on to kind of a reality check here is that unfortunately the world's religions have been a factor for division and conflict in the history of humanity since we can remember. So from the time of the Crusades, where the Catholics and Christians went down to Turkey and just totally slaughtered the Muslims, to this kind of religious-inspired global terrorism, differences in religions have been and continue to be a sad factor of discord and violence within the human family. And these conflicts don't not only happen between different religions, but they happen within the very religions themselves. As we saw, it's now decades, I don't know how it's going now, but for the, in Ireland, I mean, mm -hmm. Christian, believing in Jesus, believing in God, and the Catholics and the Protestants just killing each other for decades. Or the Sunnis and the Shiites, you know, also, same God, same Bible, Allah, and fighting, killing each other. Even in the Tibetan tradition, there are sectarian attitudes and prejudices that have caused a lot of disharmony. People have been harmed because of that very harsh drawing the line in the sand and saying, don't cross over that. So, His Holiness, being the eternal optimist that he is, says that despite needing to acknowledge this sad legacy, if we're going to take it seriously, he says that it's time to move on beyond the past history. So first of all, to acknowledge true that religion has been a major factor in the suffering of the world. But he says, at the same time, there have been hundreds of millions of people who have benefited from these, world, these, these great faith religions. And that it has been done, um, that they've given deep meaning to the lives of people, that they have been able to give them some framework on how to live their lives ethically and compassionately, and that these faiths have provided a lot of solace and peace in times of great adversity and tragedy. So on one hand, we've got this sad legacy to sort of acknowledge and admit to, and at the same time, we have a lot of rejoicing because the world's great religions have, I think, had this planet still in one piece. And even despite all the technology and scientific advancement and all the increase of wealth in the world, the tradition, you know, faiths really have a great relevance in people's lives. So it's not to be sort of brushed aside at all. So then the question arises, His Holiness says, well, how do we ensure that the differences between faiths do not continue to harbor conflict and war? Can, how can we establish a genuine, lasting harmony among ourselves? So first he says we've got to look at there are two very main forms of conflicts that arise that are, that are associated to religious differences. He says, first, there's the religious conflict that has a factor that certain differences, you know, there are, whether it's the Sunnis or the Shiites or the Catholics or the Protestants or the, uh, I think it's the Coptic Christians right now and the Muslims in Egypt, is that, um, is that the key issue is power. You know, so on the surface it looks like a religious conflict, but someone's trying to get either ethnic, economic, institutional, 
religious power over another. And that it's cloaked in this, we have serious religious differences that we're fighting over, that there's this um, looking for power, looking for position, looking for status. That's the first distinct form of conflict that arises disguised with these religious differences. And it's the disparity in wealth and power that is the fundamental problem underneath these. And then the second one, and then what, what adds to that is the people that are inciting these don't have any kind and compassionate motivation whatsoever. So they're not even practicing their faith as they're disagreeing. The second one is that there are strong doctrinal differences in faith. People are very sincere in their wishes to really be true to their own views. However, um, the perspective is very narrow because they haven't taken the time to get to know one another, to admit, to admire, to recognize each other's differences, and that they don't have a lot of contact or, or know the genuine value of the other person's uh, spiritual tradition. So there's this lack of knowledge, this lack of understanding. There's a very narrow perspective. So you're holding your identity very close to yourself, and you haven't opened up yourself to understanding what the differences are and where can we meet, where it's shared. So these are the two sort of the two motivations that drive most of the religious conflicts in the world. There's this narrow, closed sort of protectionism, and then there's this greed and this wanting wealth and status that's being cloaked in sort of in the form of religious differences. And he, he clarifies that differences are neither good nor bad. There's nothing from their own side that should warrant having conflict and war. And that he says that we have different feelings throughout the day. We as individuals, that one, one hour we're happy, one we've gotten pissed off, and now we're kind of sad, and then we're hopeful. And he says at times it seems like we're having these contradictions going on within our own thoughts and emotions during the course of the day. But yet we don't go in there and start worrying with ourselves, saying we're good because we're feeling this and we're bad because we're thinking this. Is that that's part of the human experience. And so to kind of to try to put that out as a view, that differences are not good or bad, is how we relate to them and how we stay open to them and sort of acknowledge them for what they are. And that one of the things that he says is crucial, that if we're going to bring these divergent faiths and beliefs together, to be able to coexist, is that we have to, um, it has to include a very explicit recognition of the real differences that exist. See, this is the part that, well, we'll get on to some more things that him and Venerable have to share about this. He says, this needs to be done very honestly with open-heartedness and appreciation to actually acknowledge and explore the differences. He says that, um, a successful approach cannot hide the differences by promoting we're all one. Or there's going to be some sort of universal faith system that we're all going to be under the umbrella of some cosmic universal principle. He says that's not going to work. And that we, he suggests um, that we articulate and celebrate the differences because the, dif the differences represent from a um, theistic perspective, so those who believe in a creator God, that this is sort of an example of God's wisdom playing itself out. And for those of us who don't have creator God as the basis, whether you're a secularist or you're a Buddhist or you're a, a Zane, um, they called um, Jane, the Jane practitioners who also don't have creator gods in their belief system, is that it's sort of an example of the diversity of the human spirit. 
So we can use the spiritual and the ethical context of what we value to hold the differences rather than using them to sort of fight against each other is to sort of appreciate them and know that they're this diversity of the great mind of God or the diversity of the great human, you know, the human spirit. So how do we do this? Well, His Holiness and Venerable have some ideas. The first one, you know, how to, how to get us all on the same page so that we can coexist harmoniously despite the differences, despite a lot of um, cultural differences and otherwise. So first they suggest that we have open and scholarly discussions between the faiths on the fundamental aspects that are the strongest the, the, like the doctrine of each one of them, exchange the information. What does my faith believe and what is different about that than what you believe? And to have these wonderful invigorating dialogues about the differences and use it to sort of um, broaden each other's perspective. And that, um, and, and in particular, you know, the, the belief in a creator or not a creator, that's a fundamental difference. And to try to pretend that it's not there, it's not helpful. And he said that there's a major, another major doctrine difference that I didn't, I guess I knew but I didn't realize that is sometimes also a source of conflict, is that the three of the great world religions have very different views of who Jesus was. Judaism doesn't see him as the Messiah prophesied in the Old Testament. However, the Christians not only see him as the Messiah, but they see him as the Son of God. And thirdly, the Is Islamic faith says that Jesus was a prophet, but he was not the cumulative great prophet that Muhammad was. And that the Bible is not the be-all and end-all, but the Quran, which is the final sort of sharing and wisdom from God to his creatures. So these are three of the, the world's great religions on one topic, who was Jesus, that can cause a lot of difficulties. So to have you know insightful, very open... Um, ended and open-minded discussions about where these differences are and how, how to be able to appreciate them. You know? And so the, the challenge then is to find a way that all the followers, we can remain true to our own standpoints, our own perspectives, because that's what gives meaning to our lives. That's how we practice. And at the same time, revere the paths of others and see them as legitimate. You know, so we've got to be able to do both, stand very single-pointed and firm and committed to our own path and yet still have our hearts open to the legitimacy of other faiths. And that we can grow our reverence and deep admiration for the faiths because all the faiths through the course of humanity have offered an incredible amount of peace and benefit to others. They may not have been Buddhists, they may not have been Muslims, but look at the solace, the peace, the wisdom that has been generated in the minds of human beings because of all the great religions. Really, people zoning in on the pre, from their predispositions on which spiritual paths are most conducive to who they are. And as a result, we have this incredible diversity of spiritual traditions that takes care of a whole lot more people if we were all just Buddhists. And interestingly enough, okay, and... Um, and that once again, promoting happiness and this compassionate ethical value also sort of joins us together and sort of overrides the differences. The second way that they've recommended that we try to um, coexist harmoniously and what would really help sort of nourish that is dialogue between practitioners, which is a 
loss. And that to develop deep appreciation for others' traditions, there's nothing more rich, nothing more nourishing, is for people of different faith traditions to share their spiritual deep experiences with each other. When we connect with each other, we recognize the qualities present in a practitioner of another faith are the same qualities that we aspire to develop in ourselves. It's like looking in the mirror at ourselves. And so by looking at everybody's deep yearning to find meaning, to connect with their God, to connect with their faith, to see those type of qualities are the same ones that we aspire to develop. And it's only by us deepening our own experience of our own tradition that we actually feel safe and confident to be able to open our hearts to others. When we haven't, if we haven't really owned and embodied our own spiritual path, you can see why suspicion and sensitivity and defensiveness arise, because we're not standing on any type of solid ground. Um, and it also gives us a powerful point of reference the way that people practice and share their experiences, the way that I practice, we meet, and there's a point of reference that connects us. So there are two examples here at the community that I wanted to share that have to do with this sharing with uh, practitioners of different faiths. And one of them happened before Venerable came here, but when she lived in Seattle, she would have, they became affectionately known as Jew-boo dialogues, <laughs> where she would have these interfaith dialogues with Rabbi Ted Falcone, who was a rabbi in Seattle. And they would have these amazing, personal, personal transparent, honest, humorous, um, deeply intimate sharings in the front of hundreds of people on stage. They talk about forgiveness, they talk about guilt, they talk about punishment, social action, compassion, bodhicitta, what is uh, wisdom in either of the two traditions. And it was one of the most incredible, wonderful experiences that I've ever seen venerable, really in the most, one of the most cherished environments that she really cares about, is having these heart-to-heart -heart conversations with people of other traditions. And Rabbi Falcone was just, I think he was a... Kabbalist. I mean, he was really into the deep mystical part of Judaism, and he was just wonderful. Well, that's one of the ways. And then here at the Abbey a few years ago, when we first moved here, we found out through a series of foresters that came here that there were these contemplative Carmelite nuns that lived about 10 miles from here. They're the contemplative uh, tradition that spend a lot of time alone in deep practice, and that they had won the uh, Forest Stewardship Award in 2003 for the state of Washington. And that we had heard about these nuns, and since we were thinking about forest stewardship, we wanted to go meet them. And so we ended up meeting Sister Leslie and Sister Nancy. Both together have been practicing about 80 years. And um, so we started basically on the forest stewardship level, but then we started having tea and meeting once, and once or twice a year together, having tea and starting to share experiences about what it was like to be ordained, what were the difficulties of community life, they were trying to build their community and finding difficulties and finding young women who really felt the vocation. We talked about uh, grace and mystery versus the omniscient mind of the Buddha. You know, um, we talk about social injustice. We talk about the environment. We talk about the struggles of practice, how we relate to the Buddha, how we relate to Jesus, what our relationships are. And so over the years, we have just really treasured this relationship with them. And they're generally very much keep to themselves. If we hadn't been monastics, they would not have agreed to the dialogue. But because we were nuns, they really felt a simpatico. 
as we have really felt a connection with the shared values. And in fact, a few years ago, in 2007, Sister Leslie, who's the philosopher of the two, Sister Nancy is, I love her, she's got this incredible mystic way about her that's so lovely, so lovely. And Sister Leslie came and did the Medicine Buddha retreat with us for a month. And what she did is she took the sadhana of the Medicine Buddha, generating you know refuge in bodhicitta, the four measurables, and the where we have the Medicine Buddha doing the light and the purification. So she put Jesus, the great physician, in there. And she changed everything that didn't work for her and put her Catholic um, perspective into the sadhana. And so that's what she was doing while we were doing the Medicine Buddha practice. And she found it extremely beneficial. And I think we have it on maybe Venerable's website? On Venerable's website. The beautiful practice of Jesus, the great physician. Oh my gosh. So that, that's the second one, is having these dialogues between people of, of other faiths. And we've also gone down to the, uh, the Muslim mosque in Spokane last year, Venerable Santin and Jonathan and Venerable Yeshi and I went. They had a holy day, and we were invited to participate. So we went into the mosque, and the women are separated. They're beautiful tunics and headscarves, and the men are on a screen you know, with their hats and doing the, the chanting. And just feeling, just being so welcomed and so cared for, and then having this big potluck dinner out in the parking lot. It was really quite wonderful. And making some heartfelt connections. So that's the second one. The third one, I'm running out of time, meeting between the leaders of the faiths. So this one, His Holiness, is very strongly supports. And he did it many years ago. They, they'd had a lot more of them than they do now. But he thinks that high-profile meetings of the great spiritual leaders would sort of display, whether it was symbolic or not, that there is a unified voice by the great spiritual leaders of our planet that say, peace and harmony are a pivotal part of this spiritual tradition. And we are unified in one voice to say that if we're going to save the planet, this is what has to be practiced. And that he also felt that it's also a powerful voice, all of these great spiritual leaders, when it comes to social injustice, environmental causes, and political upheavals. I remember back in the 60s and 70s when the Catholic Church or the Episcopal Church or the Buddhist Church, when they would speak about something that was going on in the world, I, I would read those newspaper articles and I would feel that there was some power behind that because it was someone who was in a position of power within a, a spiritual tradition. And that he really feels that that is uh, very, very powerful to have the leaders meet. The fourth one is joint pilgrimages to holy sites. So this is attending events and ceremonies of other faiths. So going to the mosque, but doing it with the person of that faith, not going as a tourist, but going as a pilgrim with someone of that faith who could really give you the insider's perspective on the faith. And uh, His Holiness has two uh, experiences that he shares in the book. Is that um, he went to um, he went to Lourdes, a number of years ago with some of the Catholic priests. And all of the, the water that's there and the crutches up on the wall, and he was really quite taken by the fact that the image of Mary compels people in a very, very deep, heartfelt way, and that he felt that her presence in the world was of great benefit to millions of people. And so he made a prayer, may this, holy, may this site continue to be of benefit to millions of beings from now and until the future. And then he went to Fatima a number of years later in Portugal. He laid a kata down on the statue of, of Mary. And he sat there and had a very 
he said he went into deep meditation and, and thought about her and, and her image and, and the qualities that she has. And she said, he said he got up and he turned to walk out of the room and he turned around. He said, my eyes could not have been working very well that day, he said, but Mary smiled, smiled at me. Mm-hmm. And he said this has been one of the most deeply profound spiritual experiences he's ever had. It was that moment where he really thought that Mary had smiled at him. So that's the... Um, the fourth one is to have these joint pilgrimages to holy sites. So to the end, His Holiness says that if he is right, that there is a possibility of harmonious coexistence among the world's great religions, there are three important consequences that will follow. First, the practitioners of the world's great religions, combined, harmonious, have within their power the ability to ensure that religion will never be the cause of any conflict or any war, ever again. If all religious practitioners agree with that and commit themselves to that, he says that's a consequence of following these four steps and really taking them to heart. The second one is while admitting that there are philosophical differences, if we can truly appreciate that compassion is our collective fundamental spiritual value. He says that the world religions can play an incredible role in the world as far as environments and for, as far as economies and as far as political structures. He says that just having that as the fundamental value that the world's religions could really have quite a voice in the way that things are run on the planet. And that we could generate a force for goodness harnessing the huge energy of hundreds of millions of believers to be the cause of peace and happiness in our world. I mean, just try to get your mind wrapped around this whole idea that this could be possible. This is what he's saying. And that most difficult is if we can agree to prioritize genuine peaceful coexistence among people throughout the worlds, then the world's religions have a part to play. And he uses this analogy, which unfortunately right now doesn't hold true, at least in this country, but I, I understand the point he's trying to make. Just as different political parties with strikingly different views can coexist within a political system because their shared fundamental value is the care and concern of their constituency and their society. Why can't world religions do the same? So now world religions are going to have to show the political systems that that, true, that is indeed true. Um, gosh, so, many to share. so it's a wholehearted embrace of pluralism. There is no spiritual tradition that is not legitimate. There is no spiritual tradition that needs to be excluded and to really embrace that. Um, the two uh, challenges that arise, if indeed these three consequences do come up, is that he says that the goal of world peace is elusive. You know, we really don't, I don't think we have too much in our human history that has had not some sort of religious conflict since we've been writing down on tablets and sharing our history. So he said it is an elusive goal. We haven't yet attained it, so that could present a challenge to these these consequences arising. The second one is that he said that all major faith traditions have got to acknowledge that it has served, may serve, or is continuing to serve the conflict in the war in the world. So there's an acknowledgement, an, an honest self-assessment, a self-education that says, I am part of a spiritual tradition that supports conflict in the war in the world. We have to, he keeps going back to there's an acknowledgement about having to do that by both the individual and the congregations. 
And what this does is that it will then guide us to be vigilant against any chauvinism, sexism, bigotry, intolerance in the world, because we've already reassessed those things within ourselves. So we now have a sense of what that looks like, what it feels like, how it enacts, and then we become vigilant not only to ourselves, but also to those of our own faith. And that he says that the leaders can then make consistent statements globally and locally against any use of their faith as justification for conflict. So if the individual, the congregation, the world spiritual leaders start harmoniously saying, this is what our faith means, it means peace, it means compassion, then the extremists can't hijack the voice, can't hijack the faith and take it over because the, the voice that's being heard unanimously, harmoniously, is saying that's not what this is all about. But we've got to sort of come clean with what is our participation in those conflicts and disagreements. And um, and then what and and so what happens there is that <clears throat> the next time we are caught in a disagreement with someone, instead of choosing the option of conflict, to try and see the opt of you in the situation with the eyes of the other, to see our interconnectedness in the face of the disagreement. So he continually goes back to the opportunity for us to question our own attitudes about other people's faith. You know, do we have any biases? Do we have any judgments? I mean, when you, when you see, you know, the evangelical Christian preacher doing his tirades on TV, can you look at him with compassion? Or is there some judgment going on? Because we're not isolated. I mean, the world religions are at our doorstep. We have access to knowing everything about them. And so keeping our hearts and opening our perspective about their differences and our shared values is most crucial. And um, so I'm going to end with what His Holiness has said, is that the need is quite urgent. I mean, this is something that we can't sit around and ponder much more. All we have to do is look at the news. This, the state of the world, the, the conflicts that are coming through through the veil of religious differences or, you know, just closed-mindedness are increasing and the volatility of them is increasing. If we fail, the consequences are catastrophic. If our differences lead to discord, then to violence, the survival of not just the human family is at stake, but also the planet and all the living creatures that share it with us are at stake. So, I mean, His Holiness doesn't get too urgent unless he really feels the need, nor does Venerable. I mean, she had us, you know, listen to a video yesterday, and she, she has us read and listen to things when she feels that there's an urgency, there's an importance in what's being said. And that we have incredible power and knowledge which places us in a position of great responsibility. Mm. You know, we've got the minds. We've got the karma to be human beings. Even on an individual level, how we think about others who are different and how we live our lives doesn't just have an impact on our family and on our workplace, but the, um, the ramifications really do ripple out. You know, the world has become quite small. And so he really just closes by saying that um, we live the principles of compassion with, at a minimum, holding the regard for others as our core teaching. So this is just sort of the 
icing on the cake of this remarkable book. I mean, Venerable gives a beautiful overview of her feelings about religious harmony, which is certainly worth reading. And then you can see where she gets some of her insights and perspectives because her teacher has written an entire book about something that he, he is passionate about. And so um, I encourage people to really read the chapter in here and certainly to, you know, if you can, it's a, an amazing articulate uh, book on any 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 pays such deep respect and reverence to all the world's religions in here, and he really addresses the problem very straight on. So, anyway, it was a wonderful opportunity to touch base with something that I have a, a very strong heart feeling to. Anyway. So, do people have any comments or any questions or any insights that they would like to share before we close for lunch? Yeah. Thought about this, <coughs> the uh, uh, turning the cheek and loving your neighbor as yourself, and taking a giving practice. What what you come to, it seems like, is, is really neat. You know, the fact is, uh, you have no enemies. You, you may have some challenging teachers. <laughs> there are no enemies, and you wish no one any harm. Yeah. That's a very profound statement, and it also is a testimonial to the fact that one who practices deeply what is taught, that's the experience that will arise. And we may not be able to hold that more than 15 minutes, but you know, it's, it's yeah. definitely there. Yeah, we have no enemies. Mm-hmm. Yes, other hand. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to share another interreligious uh, moments here at the Mama Zoper and Pache was here in '05 um, during Vajrasaka. His his basically his commentary had quite a big piece on Saint Francis mm-hmm. and on the purity mm-hmm. of Saint Francis and that Lama Yeshi and he had gone to Assisi mm-hmm. and visited again another beautiful holy site like he brought up with his holiness and and Fatima uh, and all those places. And that um uh Mama was saying that the power of Purity is so powerful in our culture. We think of it as kind of a weak thing, like oh, they're pure, you know. But he was saying, no, it's got incredible power that Saint Francis could tame the wolf. That's one of the famous stories that he tamed the ravenous wolf. But he also shared the story that Saint Francis was able to affect the elements and turn a flood aside by simply talking to the water huh. and saying, "Sister Water, go this way," and talking, "Brother Wolf, you know, don't harm." And so this, uh, again, this, this interconnection of a really important value in Buddhism of purifying and in Catholic religion of purifying. Mm-hmm. That's actually on the website, I think, those, uh, that commentary looking around preventable type of that. Is that, is that, mm-hmm. that um, part five? So far I was here. Oh, so you might, if you go to the website, look up the Vajrasapa 0405, mm-hmm. you might find that. I don't think it is. Oh, really? 
Christina quickly how much I appreciated this teaching, especially at, at this time of the year. And I was just thinking about how I can apply it specifically to me as I'm heading into the holiday season where we am gathering with people of different faiths. And I think this would be wonderful to just hold um, in my mind as I'm gathering. So I appreciate it very much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this time of year, Hanukkah, Ramadan, mm-hmm. Kwanzaa. Yes, and I also appreciated how you honored, or these books honor secular and humanists, whatever. Um, and, and because we really do believe that Buddhism um, kept keeping that all as one, and yes, there's really no separation. And I love that word kinship. His Holiness promotes, he's got, well, Ethics of a New Millennium was a book specifically about secular ethics. And anybody could read it, whether you had a spiritual tradition or you didn't, you know. He's extremely aware that, and that's part of the challenge, too, is that people of faith, if we're going to be a harmonious, coexisting spiritual family, we've got to also include all the secularists and the atheists and the people who say they don't, there's spiritual faiths don't really have any importance in their lives, but they're really, truly compassionate, you know, we've got to connect them in there too, we can't, and they've got to accept the fact that faith-based traditions also have some legitimacy, so there's a lot of accept, acceptance that's, you know, needed, <coughs> appreciation. I'll try to keep it short. Uh, in coming here, I, I got a lot of support from all my Christian friends even, but there's one of my evangelical friends who was actually just baptized a couple weeks ago who is admittedly very close-minded and deals with, in my opinion, in my judgment, a lot of sort of insecurity in his own faith. So anyhow, he sent me really good wishes for coming here, but he ended it with, he will always be there for you, meaning God or Jesus. And so my skill is really, that I'm working on is, you know, of course we're all one, but then how do you communicate it to someone who is not at that realization, I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. Well, I think maybe the, the quote was misheard, is that His Holiness said is that all is one is not true. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that we don't all circumambulate the same mountain mm-hmm. to get to the same point. Mm-hmm. We actually have a different, different faith traditions have different points. But the, the shared values of what we cultivate in our hearts to get to those points is very much shared. So Venerables sometimes suggest when, we, when we're being with people that are of different faiths or the challenges, is to always try to find the things that we share. Mm-hmm. You know, so get in touch with all of his sincere wishes and things, and, you know, that's that's her best suggestion in whatever challenges arise. And he will be there. Yeah, so I, I did my best <laughs> to say appreciate and just said, you know, I, I don't know how you would feel if you were going on a mission, and I said, you know, I hope you do really well, but also Buddha will always be there for you. <laughs> <laughs> That's sort of like putting the, just looking at it from the other perspective, wearing each other's shoes. Yeah. <laughs> okay, one more question. Yeah, I like, uh, like in that, in that uh, like how do you say that? I like a lot of quote of uh, the birds, they're Kabbalists. Mm-hmm. They're, they're like, taking Kabbalah to the, like, because it was very mystical and hidden, and now they're trying to show it to everybody. And one of the things that has always stayed with me is like, she said, you should never judge 
who's spiritual and who's not. If it breeds the spiritual, who are you to say that it's not as it's, the spirit lives in it? So why mm -hmm. why are you judging? And and that to me has has worked. Stay with you. Yeah, yeah, it's true. I mean, if it breeds, it's it has spirituality. <laughs> <laughs> the potential is there. Yeah. <laughs> so let's just take a moment and just rejoice. So whatever insights and understandings that might have been helpful, any sharings, to call them your own, take them into your heart, help to expand your view of yourself and others. And we dedicate whatever understandings that we have had during this time to the harmony, the peace, the well-being of all living things in this world. And may we be part of making, creating the cause and conditions for that to be so, in whatever way we have the capacity to do that. Due to this merit, may we soon attain the awakened state 